Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. It is now our second year of recording, and I'm surprised that when I look back and see what we've covered, that we haven't actually spoken to a presidential biographer. Well, that ends today. We're going to look at the first biography of President Grover Cleveland to come out in quite a while. Uh, Compared to other presidents, particularly modern presidents, there is scant coverage on Cleveland. But if you think about the coverage given to Gilded Age presidents, Cleveland actually has a few more books written about him than, say, Chester A. Arthur or Benjamin Harrison or even William Howard Taft. And perhaps the reason why there are not so many Cleveland biographies in comparison to, say, Theodore Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson is because the first major biography of Cleveland was really good. Alan Nevins, the visionary professor of history at Columbia University in the mid 20th century, wrote Grover Cleveland, a study in courage. And he wrote that in 1932. It was so good that it won the Pulitzer Prize for best biography at a time when the craft of biography was really changing. It was turning towards debunking American leaders. Nevins instead characterized Cleveland as an honest broker, besieged by his times. Now, it would be more than 30 years until Nevins' profile was scrutinized. In 1968, Rex Tugwell, who was one of FDR's New Deal economists, wrote a biography with the subtitle, The President Whose Uncompromising Honesty and Integrity Failed America in a Time of Crisis. Clearly a revisionist history. Now, fast forward to the early 2000s, and a Cleveland revival begins to materialize with Alan Brodsky's A Study in Character the title of which made a slight play on Nevins' biography and demonstrated why the best of the writing had actually been done back in 1932. And H. Paul Jeffers published An Honest President, which was a shorter character sketch of Cleveland and not particularly as deep as Nevins. The most recent biography of Cleveland is John Pafford's 2013 The Forgotten Conservative, an interesting book that came out the same year as Amity Schloss's Coolidge, which called Quiet Cal the Forgotten Conservative, too. By 2013, Republicans were looking for inspiration in Coolidge and Cleveland. They seemed like safe, traditional figures of a bygone era that could become totems for the party. We know how that ended. Schloss's biography was celebrated as the best on Coolidge, and yet the populism of Trump was more attractive to the Republican Party than the likes of Coolidge's legacy. Now, where are we with Cleveland today? 
Troy Senek, a former speechwriter for George W. Bush and the co-founder of the Kite and Key Media Group, joins me to talk about the 22nd and 24th president, who, of course, was the same person. His new book, A Man of Iron, The Turbulent and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland, is out this September and will no doubt make a valuable contribution to the ongoing interpretation of this towering figure of the late 19th century. Other than FDR, no presidential candidate has won the popular vote three times. And of course, Cleveland did not serve three terms. He's the only president to serve two non-consecutive terms, losing in 1888 to Benjamin Harrison on the Electoral College votes. So there's so much to unpack here. So let's get started. Welcome to the show, Troy. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here, Mike. It's great to have you here. And there's not been a lot of biographies about Cleveland in the recent past, but you know, there's been some over time. I have to ask you, what attracted you to Grover Cleveland? Well, there's two or three reasons. I mean, the first one is just a basic matter of kind of historical hygiene. If if you look through the history of the American presidency, 45 guys who've had this job, right? Cleveland is the one who throws off the numerology, of course, right? Biden is 46, but really 45. Um, when you do the math, there are only 14, less than a third, who've done a full eight years. And if we were to go through that list right now, they are almost all the presidents who you think of as household names, with really only one or maybe two exceptions, maybe Monroe a little bit. But Cleveland, I think, of that list, the one about whom the least is known. So that was point one. I just thought this was an important figure in American history to have kind of been forgotten about. When this book was undertaken, there was no sense that he might get some renewed attention because of the prospect that Donald Trump would try to replicate what so far he only he has accomplished in having two non-consecutive terms. So that's point one. But point two, I mean, Cleveland uh, in his era, as you well know, doing this show, um, is an era that I think is so ripe with misunderstanding for the 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 layperson today. Uh, as I say in the book, there's a there's this eccentricity in Americans' understanding of themselves, and that we are we're more conversant with the founding era and the revolution. We're more conversant with the Civil War era than we are with the Gilded Age, um, because, partially because the issues that they present are different and I think more easily intelligible in the year 2022. Um, and so, you know, Cleveland, you know, Cleveland is a, a Democrat who, you know, in many ways is probably in the modern world, uh, a little bit more of a figure of affection for Republicans, at least of a strain, you know, classical liberal types. Um, and I, I'm sure that some of those people will enjoy this this book in the same sense that people enjoy books about Calvin Coolidge, you know, forgotten sort of quasi-conservative figures. But beyond that, whether or not you are sympathetic to the kind of classical liberalism that animated Grover Cleveland, um, I think it is hard not to appreciate him as a unique and distinctive figure in the history of the presidency. I say in the conclusion of this book that uh, I think one of the great contributions of Grover Cleveland's career is that he's in many ways a rebuke to political cynicism. Um, this guy's ascent is so rapid and is really driven by the fact that he is seen as a, a political purgative in an era when politics is so rife with corruption. And he's a man who's consistently standing on principle despite the political cost, and the political costs are really severe. And one of the things that I, I try to convey in the book is that 
if you were to describe him in the abstract, many Americans would think, well, this is precisely the kind of president we want, comes up from humble roots, is consistently standing on principle, just doing the thing that he thinks is right, often without bending to political calculations. And I wanted people to see what that looks like, but I also wanted them to see the other side of the fantasy, which is that when you get a president like that, uh, it comes at a real political cost in many cases. It did for him. Grover Cleveland did not succeed on a lot of fronts because this loyalty to principle translated in practice to a kind of rigidity. But regardless, still a distinctive figure and one for whom I don't think there's any ready analogy in the history of the American presidency. There is never anybody quite like this. I think that's a great explanation. And I mean, you can refer to the fact that he won the popular vote three times as being mm -hmm. other one of those outstanding features that no one else can claim other than FDR, of course. Um, and yet somehow presidential scholars don't give him a very high ranking, you know, those sort of uh, yes. those those rankings at C-SPAN do Cleveland ranks. Why do you think he's on the bottom? Because your biography makes a pretty convincing case that he should be higher up those rankings. That's right. And and to be clear, I, I don't say he should be on Mount Rushmore, but, uh, you know, it's interesting. This is something that has changed over time. I mentioned in the the afterwards to the book that in the 1947, I think it was, Schlesinger poll, uh, Cleveland's ranked number eight. He's between Teddy Roosevelt and John Adams. Uh, in the 20s, the original proposal when the currency was being redesigned was put Grover Cleveland on the $20 bill. That's how significant he was thought to be at the time. Um, I think there's a couple things at work here. One, just the, the point that I mentioned earlier about how obscure this era has become to the, to the layperson, which is partially a function of the, the issues in the Gilded Age, but partially a function of the presidency during this era. I always say that there are two great dead spots in the presidency in terms of popular understanding. One is that band between Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln. There's really high turnover in the White House. And the other is the, with now the exception of Grant, but this post-Civil War kind of Gilded Age era. And I think part of that is attributable to the fact that the, the presidency is just as a whole weaker in those eras. And I think oftentimes modern historians don't know how to tell a story of a Congress first federal government. So we end up characterizing these eras by the issues that are involved, slavery, pre-Civil War, the economic dynamics of the Gilded Age, all of which, by the way, are of course worth considering. Um, but it's uh, it gives you an imprecise and um, not fully fleshed out vision of that era. You know, the other reason that I think Cleveland is a little overlooked is entirely Grover Cleveland's fault, which is that Grover Cleveland never wrote a memoir. Grover Cleveland did not carefully preserve his papers. This is the reason that really, outside of trying to collate the papers that are left, the best resource that we have on Grover Cleveland is Alan Nevins's book, which was written God, at this point 100 years ago. And Nevins had the luxury of, you know, A, having access to those materials, but B, and more importantly, having access to a lot of people who were proximate to Cleveland in real life. And, you know, in the absence of a good archive, these are things that we can't replicate. I've tried my best with this book and, and tried to add some new knowledge. But, you know, in the old days, if the president doesn't carefully look after those papers, that has real impacts to what their legacy is going to look like after the fact. And just very quickly, the, the last point I'll mention on this, and, and this makes up a lot of the introduction of the book, I am driven a little mad by presidential rankings. 
um, not because I think they're fundamentally misbegotten pursuits, but because I think that is too big a window of American history to try and judge by just a handful of criteria, because the way that we judge presidents in those kinds of polls I think more or less fits the last hundred years or so of the presidency from TR and maybe McKinley. But prior to that, I mean, the, the presidents that we remember sort of fit those frames a little bit better. Lincoln, Jackson, ones who had moments of crises or had an, an activist bent. But when you're looking at the presidency through a lot of the 19th century, this is certainly true of Grover Cleveland. When the chief executive has a, a more passive conception of what they're supposed to do. You know, they're not necessarily a party leader. They're not necessarily leading Congress around by the nose. They are thinking of themselves as Cleveland did, as more of an ombudsman, more of somebody who is trying to keep the ship of state going straight. You just can't judge them, I don't think, by the same standards. These are not major world bestriding foreign policy leaders. These are not big legislative activists. I just think you really have to judge them in the context of their times. And that's why I think Cleveland and some of the other presidents of that era have been disserved by those kinds of entirety of American history presidential rankings. I mean, that's very astute. If you look at the uh, ca the categories for the C-SPAN rankings, for example, vision and agenda setting is number one. And presidents like Cleveland and Harrison didn't come into the White House with a vision and with a clear agenda. They were, as you say, stewards. But the great thing about biography is that we know where to start this story, too, which is his childhood. And, I, and what I really liked about your book is that you do not draw straight lines from Cleveland's youth to his adulthood. So... I mean, does Cleveland defy those straight lines? And how important is his youth to his character as an adult? I think it's important. The question about straight lines, you know, I tried to approach this project with a measure of modesty. It was very important to me not to fill in gaps that couldn't be filled in. We just don't know a lot about his youth, um, partially because nobody thought that he was going to amount to anything all that special. He has a he has a very modest upbringing. He's born in 1837 in Caldwell, New Jersey. His father is a Presbyterian minister. It'd be an overstatement to call him an itinerant minister, but he is constantly changing jobs, and so they are moving throughout his childhood. He leaves New Jersey when he's about three, spends the rest of his childhood bouncing around upstate New York. So without trying to read too much into his childhood, I mean, as, as I say in the book, I think this is a bad tendency that historians have sometimes just find a metaphor everywhere in somebody's childhood. Um, but one thing I think it is fair to draw out, and something that is becoming, I think, a little bit more foreign to uh, America in the year 2022, there's something about our culture that is becoming more nationalized. I, I think there actually is an important regional character to Grover Cleveland. He's from New Jersey, but his family has a long history in New England and in the clergy in New England. And this is relevant, I think, insofar as there is a very Yankee, New England sort of old school old school Puritan sensibility about him. And what I mean by that, I mean, it's funny to this day, New England is, I think, the only region in the country that has its own adjective. If you say the word flinty, you're talking about New England, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and that is that old kind of English sensibility, all of which you see really heavily in Grover Cleveland. He's self-denying. Um, he's got an extraordinarily high work ethic, as I say in the book, a work ethic that would have gotten him medicated today, because throughout his career, you are seeing these accounts of him, his work hours being from 8 a.m. to 3 a.m. This, by the way, I mean, your listeners, one of the things that most lay people know about Grover Cleveland is that he was enormous, that he weighed in at about 275 pounds. 
<clears throat> excuse me, this is um, probably a big part of the reason why, because all he did was eat and sit behind a desk. The testimonies we have indicate that he gained about 100 pounds during his youth in Buffalo when he was really burning both ends of the candle uh, as a lawyer. But back to this point about, about New England, there is a, there's a self-denying trait to him. There is a there is a deep work ethic. He is, from all accounts, it seems to be a bit of an introvert, a little on the shy side. Um, he is certainly not somebody who, I'm mean, just to, to contrast him with somebody he interacted with, he is not Theodore Roosevelt. He is not brimming with energy. He is not uh, a great rhetorical president at all. In fact, does not like giving speeches, doesn't give very many of them, which you know, it's easy to say in the 19th century that wasn't the fashion, which is true, but Cleveland actually occupies the moment where it's really starting to change. And so he is a little, you ought to think of him almost like, you know, people talk about Winston Churchill sometimes and say one of the keys to understanding Churchill is that he was a little outdated even for his own era. He was already a little bit of a throwback. And Cleveland is like that. Cleveland, in terms of his style, this very kind of hands-off, low visibility version of the presidency, and his ideology, this old-fashioned kind of classical liberalism, mostly laissez-faire, mostly constitutionalist, he is very representative of an old Democratic Party, and a Democratic Party at that point that is in the course of his two terms will actually start to move out from under him and in the end leave him behind. The big break you mentioned, it's Buffalo, and he mm -hmm. becomes mayor of that city. But as you as you point out, he's originally from New Jersey. There's this sort of yeah. moving around New England. How does he get there? And and, that, and like in your book, you what you outline is that city does really change him. So can you tell us how it does that? Yeah. So Grover Cleveland, it's important to know to understand his upbringing. As I mentioned, the father is a minister. The father also dies when Cleveland is 16, which sets his his life off in a different direction. This ends up denying him what had been his plan to go to college. Uh, because he is the fifth of nine children. It's a big family. His father is the sole source of income. The father dies. At that point, the kids have to figure out how to make a living both for themselves and for their widowed mother. And Cleveland's response to this is with his brother to go to New York City for a year and teach in a school for the blind, which he hates. He really despises. He feels like the kids are being warehoused there. There are some stories. I actually cut these from the book, but the, the staff all felt beleaguered. The staff all felt as if they were being abused by the administration there. He just didn't like it. And, you know, he's a young man in New York, but he's not footloose and fancy free. All this money is going back to his mother. He's just miserable. So after his year is done, he goes back home with an eye towards moving west. He thinks he's going to go to Cleveland, Ohio, at least partially some accounts suggest because he shares a name with it. It is named actually after a distant relative of his. These are the kinds of decisions one makes when they're 17, 18 years old, which he was at the time. And fortuitously enough, he stops off in, in Buffalo on the trip. He has uh, an aunt and uncle in Buffalo. And his uncle by marriage is a gentleman by the name of Lewis Allen, who's a very wealthy resident of Buffalo, has had some political success of his own, is a Whig, importantly, not a Democrat like Cleveland. But Allen sees in his nephew some potential and also some sense that this kid doesn't know what he's doing. It, this, this Cleveland idea, this Cleveland, Ohio idea seems crazy and gets him installed uh, in a local law firm in Buffalo. That In this era, you're not, for the most part, going to law school. You're reading law. You're studying in a, in a law firm, which is what Cleveland did. And 
because of these, you know, somewhat prosaic factors that we've identified already, this just grinding work ethic, he earns a lot of esteem in the profession and ends up by his mid-20s being the assistant district attorney in Erie County, New York. Uh, subsequently runs for district attorney and loses. You asked about the, the mayor's race. This is such a weird trajectory. Again, when I say there's nobody quite like Grover Cleveland, Grover Cleveland, if you locate him in the year 1881, which is the year that he wins the mayor's race, Grover Cleveland is 44 years old. He has not held an elected office for 10 years. The last one he held was this the sheriff of Erie County, where he kind of got himself on the outs with the other Democrats in Buffalo because he ran a clean office. Uh, it was understood at the time the sheriff's office were full of graft and that, you know, to use the modern parlance, sometimes stuff would fall off the truck when a delivery came into the sheriff's office. Grover Cleveland comes in there as a guy who's measuring every bit of cordwood that comes in, earns him the esteem of the public, but not of his fellow Democrats. He's kind of disappeared. So 1881, 44 years old. It's been a decade since he's held any other office. This is not the profile of somebody that you would think is going to be president of the United States in three years, yet that's precisely what happens. 1881, mayor of Buffalo. 1882, governor of New York. 1884, president of the United States. And he sort of stumbles into the mayor's race. As I, as I point out in the book, I mean, Cleveland, I think some of the Cleveland biographies overstate and romanticize the extent to which he was not ambitious. Nobody becomes president of the United States without, become, without being a little ambitious. But I think it is the case, particularly early in his career, that this was not what he was setting out to do necessarily. I, all the evidence seems to me to suggest that he's probably had his eyes set more on something like a judgeship, which is arguably something he was temperamentally better suited for. But he gets recruited into this uh, Buffalo Mayor's race literally on the basis of a conversation in a bar. He shows up in a tavern in Buffalo that he frequents, sees some party regulars who are trying to recruit people to run for office, to run for the mayor's office, which at the time would normally have been held by a, a prominent businessman rather than a lawyer like Cleveland, and they can't get anybody to say yes. And after the conversation goes on long enough, they say, well, maybe it makes sense to have the, because the dominant issue in Buffalo politics at this point in time is how rampant corruption is. Maybe it makes sense to draft the guy who was known, known for being the sheriff who played it all straight and thus begins the political journey of Grover Cleveland. And it is sort of like one step into the unexpected political unknown after the other. So that's yeah. Buffalo. But to go from Buffalo and municipal politics to state politics, the 1882 gubernatorial election, how does a regional mayor of, you know, I mean, become the, the governor of the most important state in the union? Well, it's a good question, and it was one that I was intent on answering in this book because one of the things I always find weird about accounts of Cleveland is that they almost uniformly say, well, he was kind of boring, and then they spend the whole time focused on his personality. And I just thought that there are, there are a lack of books that take him seriously as a policymaker and take him seriously as a politician, and I was trying to remedy both of those here because the story of how he becomes governor is interesting for precisely the reason that you point out. I mean, Buffalo in 1882 is not Buffalo of 2022. It is a very important city in America. It has had such a huge population surge in the wake of the construction of the Erie Canal. It is, it is one of the sort of central American cities that feels like a bastion of growth. So it's not as if it's marginal, but it's still in New York State. And 
always going to play second fiddle to New York City. And when, you know, for people who don't know the geography, we tend to think of the Northeast as composed of small states, but New York is really quite large. And the distance between Buffalo and New York City, especially in that era, means a lot. Um, so even when Cleveland starts getting touted as a potential candidate, you know, there's an account of actually the man who would later become Cleveland's lieutenant governor being told in the run up to the governor's race, I think Grover Cleveland is probably going to be the leading candidate. And his response is, who the hell is Grover Cleveland? <laughs> Western New York was just a, a world apart which is the thing that Cleveland had to combat, especially because Cleveland had managed during his time in Buffalo to be, for the most part, at a remove. Being outside of New York City meant he didn't really have to deal with Tammany Hall up to that point. And Cleveland's sort of strident reformist brand of politics uh, was not at all compatible with Tammany Hall's. And this ends up becoming one of the central political battles of his career up through his, his presidency. So how does he do this? Well, he alights on... A pretty clever strategy, and as with a lot of things about Grover Cleveland, unclear whether this was just dumb luck or whether he actually <laughs> knew what he was doing. This is the problem with having a, a president who A, didn't keep his papers in that good of an order, but B, who was also not that introspective, he was not that interested in telling you what he was doing at any given point in time. He um, employed a time-honored political strategy that often works and also often doesn't, which is... Uh, in his attempt to be governor, he really never tried to get out ahead in the field for the Democratic nomination. He tried to be everybody's second choice. And because of all the factions within the New York Democratic Party at the time and all the jostling that went on between them, it, it turned out that this worked. Uh, in some ways, this is really the most impressive win of his political career. The, the other is you can kind of draw a straight line from where it starts to where it ends. And this is him really beating the odds and and really moving the pieces around. I, I should say it's really, you know, people like Daniel Manning who are, are helping him. Cleveland is by no means a, a, a Machiavelli on this stuff. But uh, that's how it ends up happening. It's him sort of positioning himself to be the fallback when your main candidate falls out. I know that you are a scholar because you say that this is really a very interesting race because every journalist is far more interested in the 1840 or 1884 presidential right, election. Right. I mean, that that has everything, all the the the, the scandal and, and what yes, it does. I have so many questions for you about 1884. Sure. And I, I'd love to ask you more about New York, but I, I need to get through this election because it's just so important yes. in American history. Um, how does Cleveland become the Democratic standard bearer that year? Well, the thing that Cleveland really has going for him, and this is true throughout his career. I mean, we should put we should put this in context for the audience. Post-Civil War, you're talking about a Republican, an ongoing Republican dominance of national politics. There is a reason that Democrats have been kept out of the White House. Cleveland is the first president, first Democrat elected president since James Buchanan in 1856, almost been 30 years. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And the Democrats, I'm dramatically oversimplifying this story, but the Democrats wise up, which is they, they nominate a Northern candidate without any of that Southern baggage, but also importantly, they nominate a Democratic candidate who has a really serious shot at peeling away Republican voters. I say in the book that there is a term that you will see in all the literature of the time, the journalism of the time, I should say, the Cleveland luck, because this all seems so improbable. Everybody just thought this guy is a shooting star, and he manages to improbably climb from one rung of the ladder to the next. And, you know, I'm always a little skeptical when I see something, a development that large attributed entirely to luck. Um, there's certainly luck at work here. But this is why in the book I say, no, no, it's the Cleveland method, which is the thing that works for him and the thing that allows him to break through in jurisdictions where Democrat, where, excuse me, where Republicans are dominant, is that he's always in but not of a party, this sort of crusading reformist version of democratic politics that is his hallmark, is very attractive to the Republicans of the time who are growing tired of the corruption that has resulted from, you know, this is this is a thing you see all the time with one party rule, right? You just get too fat and happy. You get in the book, I say it's the equivalent of political gout. This, this corruption just kind of sets in. And so Cleveland provided a, a template by which he could consolidate Democratic support. It's helpful at this point, right? The Democrats have been kept out of office for so long that anybody who seems viable, they're going to move mine. This is a big part of how he actually gets the nomination. But is also positioned in such a way that Republicans can vote for him, reformist Republicans, without feeling like they're abandoning their principles. And this is the thing that consistently works for him. And to your question about how he actually got the nomination, this ends up being the argument that wins the day in the 1884 convention is, look, you guys have been shut out of the White House over and over again. If your question is, how do we get a Democrat who can win over those crossover votes that are necessary to get 
the presidency. We've got a guy who's just done it multiple times. What more do you need? Also matters that he's the governor of New York. And at the time, New York is a swing state. Right. And I, I think to your point about the context, you're spot on about that. Tilden's run for the presidency in 1876, a Democrat governor from New York is another great example. So, I mean, that that makes perfect sense when you put it into context. When you look at the general election, though, it does seem a little bit uh, about luck, a little bit about the context of politics and also, you know, as scandalous of a, of a Republican candidate. So let's just set the scene here. On the Republican side is James Blaine, who is wrapped up in the credit mobilier scandal, accused of taking bribes. He also is accused of being morally corrupt because he has a child before he's married, which today seems, you know, ridiculous. Unbelievably quoted in, yeah. Yeah. Um, for Cleveland, though, he has an even bigger problem, child. So tell us about the Halpin scandal. Yeah, so the Halpin scandal was really the biggest open question for me coming into this book because, as a lot of your listeners probably know, most of us who are interested in presidential history grew up with some superficial understanding of this, the ma, ma, where's my pa chance about Grover Cleveland. And in the last year – excuse me, in the last 10 years, um, this has taken on a, a much darker shade because there has been this pervasive – notion that Grover Cleveland, beyond just having a child out of wedlock, that Grover Cleveland was actually a rapist. And the pieces here are complicated, and uh, it is still the case that there is a lot we don't know. So I'll give the, the most basic breakdown of this, which is that in the 1884 election, shortly after Cleveland receives the Democratic nomination, a story breaks that he had – well, it, the story begins with Cleveland just – as a general matter, being a moral degenerate. It claims that he's a drunk. It claims that he's commiserating with prostitutes. And then the real meat of the story is that he has um, seduced a young woman, fathered a child with her out of wedlock, promised to marry her, but subsequently abandoned her. And then when he became nervous about the prospects that it would undo his political career, had the child abducted from her and had her committed to an asylum. Pretty bad, especially when you are somebody whose nickname is Grover the Good, when your whole selling point is that you're this paragon of moral virtue. So is it true? Partially, aspects of it are, aspects of it we don't know, uh, aspects of it we know for sure are wrong. Uh, Maria Halpin or, or Mariah, there's some question as to what the proper pronunciation would be in the, in the era. Um, Maria Halpin did have a relationship with Grover Cleveland, that much as a sexual relationship. Cleveland never denied this. She did produce a child. Cleveland's defenders at the time tried to suggest, and you will still see this in a lot of mainstream publications as a as a plausible defense. I don't think it is that uh, actually she had been involved with multiple men, several of whom were married, and that Cleveland was actually doing the heroic thing by stepping forward and and claiming paternity. It's strongly implied that one of the men in question is Grover Cleveland's by then deceased best friend. Oscar Folsom. And Cleveland is actually much angrier about this suggestion from his friends than he is about the accusations against himself. The most lurid details, the child being stolen away from her and her being committed to an asylum, uh, seem to be gross misrepresentations of things that did actually have some basis in fact, which is that Cleveland uh, had been worried about this child's well-being. Maria Halpin, even by the acknowledgement of her defenders, was an alcoholic. Even the story that set out to 
Tora Cleveland with these allegations made reference to the fact that she had threatened to kill both Cleveland and the baby. So Cleveland went to a retired judge who was a friend of his who sat on the board of a local orphanage and had asked him to look in on the matter and see whether or not the child was endangered by being in this household. Convinces Maria Halpin that the child is in danger and that he should be put up for adoption. She is then given some money by Cleveland to start a new life for herself relatively nearby in Niagara Falls. She comes to regret this, goes back to the orphanage and abducts the child. And so the story that the newspaper reports of the child being stolen from her is actually the second iteration of the uh, interaction with the orphanage. It's them coming to take back the child that she had removed from their premises. And the stay in an asylum, uh, the facility was a place where people were treated for mental illness, but she's there in its capacity as a sanitarium because of her alcohol problem. And she's there voluntarily, and, and she leaves after about 10 days. And uh, weirdly, because of the strange Blaine scandal that you, you mentioned earlier that seems odd to us, you know, Blaine was accused of fathering this child uh, before he before he had married his wife. It, a bigger deal then than it is now, but still, he had been married to this woman for a long time. You could see how this could wash off of him. The weird thing is that Blaine equivocates on this, and all of Blaine's defenders come out with alternate versions of the story of what actually happened, whereas Cleveland doesn't really say much about the Halpin scandal and famously tells his staffers, you know, above all, tell the truth which, as I say in the book, is a thing that is given a little too much credit because if you don't know what the truth is, that is a less heroic statement. But the net effect politically, right? Cleveland has this major scandal, but he ends up looking okay as a result because people don't see him trying to dodge it. And it turns out that the most lurid details of it are overhyped. Blaine has this very modest scandal, but then starts equivocating left and right. And it reinforces what the voters already think about these two candidates, that Cleveland is the one who will stand like a rock even when it's tough, and Blaine is the one who will tap dance whenever things get tough. So very quickly, because I don't mean to belabor this, but the, the, the rape point is important. The, the reason that this rape story has taken hold, it's only really in the last decade. It's because of one book, and I, I will not name the book or the author because I, none of this is is personal. This may be an entirely innocent mistake, uh, but this story has had incredible legs, and it's just not supported by the evidence. The reason that this story of Cleveland as rapist takes off, the source of it, is that months after the initial scandal has broken, we are talking within a week before the 1884 election, uh, a story runs reviving the Halpin scandal and saying in a sworn affidavit from Maria Halpin that in fact Grover Cleveland had raped her. That was the source of the pregnancy and that he had threatened her life if she told anybody. Now already some elementary problems with this narrative because one would think if a rape victim came forward with an affidavit a week before a presidential election in the year 1884, that this would probably be fatal in Victorian America, or, or at least be something that we wouldn't have not learned about until 2011. And the reason for this is that a few days after this story runs, another story runs in which Maria Halpin tells the press that she had actually signed this affidavit without reading it at the behest of a friend who told her that it was to defend Grover Cleveland. And she says uh, at the end of that piece that she has the, all the material points had already been made. So she's not casting him as a hero, but she but she does say I've I have no um, 
I'm paraphrasing this, but I have no grievances with Mr. Cleveland. And unfortunately, the origin of the virality of this story just ignores that piece of data. It's just not in that account. And so Grover Cleveland does not look like a hero in this the whole Halpin story by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think we should consider him one. But this notion that has taken root that he's a, a rapist just has no support in terms of the actual chronology of events. And I guess if we're looking at the general election as well, the the scandal about Blaine is is not just about his child. I mean, a, a lot of the reason why Cleveland uh, is going to win and this isn't going to affect his his chances of winning is because Blaine himself is quite a faulty candidate. But I don't want to put all the blame on Blaine. I'd, <laughs> I'd also like to say that Cleveland puts together a pretty impressive political coalition at this time. I mean, the so-called mugwumps who are yes. Republicans that swap over to Cleveland are, are an important part of this election. And it's unlike any I think we've seen in American history up until that point. It's post-Civil War. So can you just tell us a little bit about how Cleveland does put that together or how the party perhaps, because it's not all Cleveland, but how the party puts together this new political coalition? Well, that's right. Cleveland is uh, attractive to the mugwumps because of his reformist instincts. And I don't mean to catch that in general terms. A lot of it comes down to his support for the civil service reform that they're very enthusiastic about. Um, you know, Cleveland and the mugwumps end up on the same page with tariffs, which ends up becoming – tariff reductions ends up becoming one of the defining crusades of both terms of his presidency, although he actually – he doesn't really talk about it that much the first time that he runs for president. And that's partially because there's at least circumstantial evidence to suggest that he didn't really understand the issue all that well. I mean, one of the defining features of Cleveland is he's a he's a he's a good lawyer and he is somebody who uh, he waits and studies when an issue is presented to him and he just had never had a reason to deal with the tariff prior to that. So that, in many ways, is the root of the mugwump attraction. It's it's also worth remembering that this is a very strange moment that goes on for a while in American politics where you start seeing all of these forces pulling apart the coalitions on both sides. You've got the, the prohibitionists taking out of the Republican sides. You've got the, the greenbackers and eventually the, the populists on the Democratic side. And there's just this swirl around that election. <laughs> By the way, you've got, you've got each side, each major party funding the sort of third party oppositions to the other side. I mean, it's just sort of remarkable, the, the chaos that is that is involved in this. But Cleveland, you know, navigates this quite ably, and he um, he conducts a, a campaign that's very much a first principles campaign. You don't see a lot of really specific policy prescriptions from him, partially because this is not his conception of the presidency, especially at that point. This isn't a guy. This isn't a modern president with a, a ten point agenda as to what he's going to do. What does Grover Cleveland care about? Well, he really cares about not wasting taxpayer money. This is a thing you see throughout his career. There's these repeated assertions that if you spend a cent beyond the necessary requirements to fund the government, that is tantamount to theft. The other thing you see in him that is very reflective of this kind of classical liberalism, and is one of the reasons that I think people earlier in his career uh, love him because this plays out functionally a lot of times as vetoes for appropriations towards corrupt interests. But he has this obsession with the fact that nobody should get special treatment from the government, that everybody should be treated exactly the same. And these are the things he's talking about in the 1884 campaign. To the extent he's talking, by the way, he gives two speeches the entire time, whereas 
explain, I say in the book, if you had had this contest today, boy, they would seem unevenly matched because Blaine in some ways kind of prefigures modern presidential candidates. He's a great speaker. Crowds love him. There's a charisma to him. He's a strange guy in a lot of respects, but he he knows how to work a crowd. Cleveland just doesn't. I mean, there's a there's a point in Cleveland's first term where he goes on a, a tour through the, the South and the West. And it literally, if you look at the speeches that he gives, he is just reading almost verbatim encyclopedia entries about the places that he's visiting. He is not the most fluorescent speaker in the world. <laughs> well, I mean, there's there's no greater like, uh, 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 I suppose, way of depicting him he's he's this he's a curiosity in a lot of ways he really is um, his his first his first administration he seems he, like he has plenty of missteps but why don't we why don't we characterize his accomplishments too can you say a little bit about that first administration what he does right and what he does wrong yeah i mean the interesting thing about cleveland's first term or uninteresting as the case may be i always have to tell people this is to our point about the the Gilded Age, if, if you list the major issues he's he's dealing with, pensions for military veterans, the, the tariff, um, this is more true in his second term than his first, but silver in the monetary supply, these things all seem incredibly antique to modern observers, hard to understand why they were so important. So to just give some modern touchstones to sort of index people to this, pensions, pensions for for union veterans, because if there were pensions for Confederate veterans, they would happen at the state level, but not federally. Um, Why does anybody care? Well, they care because at the time, it's the second largest federal expenditure after the interest payments on the debt. Um, It's uh, imprecise as a matter of scale to compare it to entitlement programs today, but in terms of the hierarchy of where it falls in federal spending, that's what we're talking about. And you know, one of the few things that most people know about Grover Cleveland is that he just issued this insane amount of vetoes. I have to always have to pull up my notes to get the exact number because it is so large that I can never commit to me. 584 vetoes across two terms, 414 in the first. Uh, what people often don't know, um, because this, these statistics are somewhat misleading, is that a huge chunk of those vetoes were dedicated to these pensions. There were these things called private pension bills, where if somebody had been denied the straight draw from the treasury, a member of Congress could just write a piece of legislation giving them the pension. So why does Grover Cleveland care about this? Apart from the the fiscal impact, he thinks that there's a principle at work here, which is this ends up being a kind of interest group politics, right? The, the veterans have figured out over time that this is a pot of money that they can keep expanding. And, and I shouldn't even say the veterans because there are a lot of people who make very dubious claims on the treasury here, which is why Cleveland is so aggressive in patrolling it. So it starts off with, you can receive a pension if you're injured in the course of the war. Then it moves to, well, you can actually claim the pension. The pension can be backdated if you get a successful approval, which floods the program with new applicants because that's a windfall if you can get 20 years worth of it. Uh, Eventually, it will expand to the point where if you were a veteran and you were injured, uh, excuse me, if you were a veteran and you are now uh, disabled, regardless of whether it has anything to do with your service, you can draw on these pensions. Cleveland is very aggressive in patrolling these things. He's looking at them himself. It's amazing the amount of time he dedicates to these things, and you can make a good argument that it's a bad use of presidential time. 
but it does result in some of the most surreal veto announcements that you have ever read in your life. Grover Cleveland writing things like it's preposterous for somebody to attribute their sore eyes to diarrhea. I'm rejecting this veto. It's ridiculous to give money to a guy who broke his leg while picking daffodils. I'm rejecting this uh, appropriation. I said veto before. But there's a moral principle at work here for Grover Cleveland. It's not just that he's trying to protect the treasury. It's that he thinks that a place on the pension roll is a sign of honor, that there is a recognition of what people did for their country in a moment of danger, and that you are degrading that, that you are insulting it, that you are making a mockery of it when you allow those funds to be given over to people who are just trying to game the treasury. That's one of the big issues in his first term. The tariffs, I mean, that that really comes to fruition in his second term. Why does anybody care about tariffs? Well, because at the time, tariffs arguing about tariffs at this point in American history is like arguing about the income tax today. This is where the money was. This is where the federal budget came from. It's almost entirely the tariffs and then some excise taxes on uh, tobacco and whiskey and then a little bit from land sales in the in the West. What is so interesting about Cleveland on the tariff question, especially in the modern context, <clears throat> is it's it plays out the opposite of how you would think it would play out today. You know, it's interesting that this this issue is now at the forefront of political discussion again, because it felt like up until about six or seven years ago that we had sort of gotten to a consensus on this. All, all the, the elite uh, precincts of both parties were in a mostly free trade place. So now it comes back up in our context with Donald Trump, and it's seen as a central aspect of populism. Cleveland, in his day, thinks that lowering the tariff is the act of populism. And the reason that he thinks that is that because he, and this is a, a pervasive obsession of his, is that he thinks the tariffs are the product of uh, improper corporate power, that these are corporations getting into the, leeching into the federal government to make sure they've got the protection for theirs. The effort he makes on this front in um, in both of his terms shows this to be true, by the way, because he, he, you know, you want a clean reduction in tariff rates, and then it turns out when it gets to Congress, Louisiana says that's fine, except for sugar. Alabama says that's fine, except for iron. So those are two of the big issues. And then, of course, the other one is um, is civil service reform, as I mentioned, which the mugwumps were were particularly um, particularly insistent upon, sometimes to Cleveland's annoyance. He, he found himself irritated with how – I mean there, there's no shortage of self-righteousness amongst the mugwumps, nor was there in many cases with Cleveland. Um, he, 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 does not, um, he does not create this out of nothing. He's inheriting the civil service reforms of Chester Arthur, but he expands them greatly. And he does so, again, to my point about how being – trying to be a, a decent man in public office can really come out of your hide. He does so in a way that makes nobody really happy because – you can imagine how Democrats felt. You haven't had the executive branch for nearly 30 years. Why on earth would you be uh, bowing to incumbent Republican office holders? But Cleveland's view was that he would let Republican office holders who were doing their jobs well at least serve out their term. And if they were exceptional, he would keep them. And uh, and he personally inspected all the Democratic applicants too. So he is not playing ball in terms of internal party politics. He's not giving Tammany Hall who they want. Uh, he is not. He's not really giving anybody who they want, which is why his supporters are mocked at the time by being told, "You got your president, but you can't get your postmaster." Right. Very good. And I wonder 
Is that the explanation? Is that the simple explanation for 1888 Harrison's electoral victory, if not popular victory over Cleveland, that the mugwumps aren't really, they don't fancy him the same way they did four years prior. And, and the Democratic Party is a little wishy-washy on him. Or, or is there something to be said for Benjamin Harrison here? Uh, I think there's something to be said for for Harrison. You know, it's always so hard to disaggregate these old races when we we don't have numbers, and so we're really reliant on. I mean, we don't have like deep polling numbers, so we're reliant on on you know top line numbers and and narratives. Uh, there are two things that I spend a lot of time on on the book, which is not to say that they were the only causes. One of which is that Cleveland makes, by my lights, a, a somewhat baffling decision to go all in on the tariff late in his first term. On, on tariff reductions. And it's worth pointing out, and this will be a recurring theme throughout his career, he does not have the entirety of the Democratic Party with him on this by by any means. And, um, you know, I've spent a little time in politics, enough to know that going into a presidential election, it is maybe not the wisest thing in the world to pick as the centerpiece of your campaign, an issue that divides your party and unites the other side. I just, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure what he was thinking here. Although you get from his own from his own words at the time a sense that he feels like this is his principle, and it's worth doing. This is where the famous quote, "What's the point in being elected if you're not going to stand for something?" comes for. You know, one can question if it's worth standing for something that's going to go down to inevitable defeat. So that that's one part. The the tariff argument really gets away from him as he runs for president. And what I mean by that is that. Harrison and the Republicans have a very clear message on this, which is that these tariff reductions are going to be ruinous. They're going to destroy your industries. These protective tariffs are the things that keep American industry afloat. Simple. What's Cleveland and the Democrats' diagnosis of this? Well, it's we're going to reduce it, but we're going to reduce it in such a way that it's not going to threaten industry. And we're also we're going to care for labor. So it's not really going to come out of anybody's. It's just this sea of equivocations and half measures, a terrible message going into an election. So I think that's part of it. The Cleveland campaign in 1888 is horribly run. It is terribly run. There is nobody at the teller. Cleveland, we have letters from Cleveland after getting the nomination, writing to people asking if they have any ideas about who could run it. He ends up getting two guys, two businessmen on board who – are against him on the central issue of the campaign, the tariff. And in fact, we have a, a letter regarding one from one of Cleveland's associates saying, I don't think he was upset that Cleveland lost. And by contrast, the Harrison campaign of 1888, incredibly modern by comparison. Harrison's giving um, front porch speeches in Indianapolis, but he has set up this network throughout the country to relay these things to journalists and get it into all the important markets. He's doing the work. Cleveland, again, is not. He's giving he's giving one speech. He's sitting behind his desk. And by the way, I mean, Cleveland also has this geriatric running mate in Alan Thurman, who they send out to do all of these events, so old that he give, gets up to give a speech at Madison Square Garden and says, I've heard it said that Alan Thurman is too old to be vice president. You think he's going to give you this triumphant follow-on? And he says, in essence, that may be right. He had the flu and he leaves the stage. <laughs> it's just absurd. They were determined to kill this man in the saddle. So I, I think the Harrison campaign actually deserves a lot of credit on that. I think that's great. I, the thing that I always thought your book does a really good job in explaining this, though, as well. And I want to 
I want to say that I want to give you some space to explain this because Cleveland comes back, right? And obviously he has that name recognition, which you point Mm -hmm. out in the book, but this, this revival of Cleveland's political fortunes four years later is partly down to the fact that he did have some success in 1888, at least with the popular vote. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but what, what fuels that, that second, uh, that Lazarus moment in, in, in the next campaign? You know, it's funny, as you, as you might imagine, this is probably the question that I get the most now because people are mining Grover Cleveland to try and see if they can find insights for what happens if Donald Trump, as he seems likely to do, runs for president again. And I always tell them when they ask what you can learn from the one campaign to apply to the other, almost nothing. You can learn how much American politics has changed. And what I mean by that is, as you point out, Cleveland wins the popular vote in 1888. The really um, the Electoral College basically comes down to his home state of New York and Harrison's home state of Indiana flipping. By the way, it's worth noting parenthetically that there are Democratic allegations that this race has been stolen from Cleveland. And Cleveland's response to that when he's asked why he thought he lost was because the other party got the most votes. He doesn't entertain this. And a little asterisk on this, this is this race and those concerns uh, in many ways are really the genesis of the secret ballot. By the 1892 election, you see that in many states throughout the country. So how does Cleveland do it? How does he come back? Well, uh, you know, many people have heard the story of Francis Cleveland, the first lady, saying when he leaves office, we'll be back in four years. She may have thought that. It's in no way clear that Grover Cleveland did when he left. And in fact, all the letters we have from the time seem to suggest that he thought precisely the opposite. In fact, wasn't particularly interested in going back. He leaves Washington. He goes to the Upper East Side of New York. Remember, this is in a day prior to presidential pension, so he's got to work. He's got to make money. He gets a job with a law firm. He's not getting rich, partially because what he really wants is the the freedom. I mean, he's spending a lot of time hunting and fishing and only so much in the office. So where do we locate the genesis of this, the Lazarus moment, as you call it, quite quite rightly? Uh it's it's weird and it's unintelligible in the context of modern politics. So there is this fight, which I have uh, thus far largely avoided because I really hate to subject audiences to 19th century monetary policy. But the, the very, very abbreviated version of this is there's this fight within the Democratic Party uh, where Cleveland is on the minority side, is on the side that does not have the momentum. Where the populist Democrats, particularly in the West and the South, want more silver in the money supply in the hopes that it will inflate away some of the debt burden that they have out on the frontier in the South and the West. Cleveland doesn't like this for for many reasons. He thinks it's bad economics, but also I, I don't think you can undervalue the extent to which the lawyer in him blanches at the fact. I think the way he thinks about this, I'm just reading through some of the letters from the time. Uh, he's such a lawyer. He's such a classical liberal that the the inflationary instinct for him, that's changing the terms of all these contracts. This is upending the economic status quo. He hates this. And so during his um, interregnum out of office, he, against the advice of all of his associates, writes an open letter to his fellow Democrats, telling them to avoid this temptation, that it'll be ruinous for the country, that it'll be ruinous for the party. He really works on this in a way that he doesn't in a lot of his writing. He makes it shorter and shorter and sharper and sharper until the final thing's about three paragraphs long. His associates beg him not to release this. 
And he does it anyway. And there is a recollection from one of his friends at the time that I never saw Grover Cleveland so happy as when he threw away the presidency. This is a sort of recurrent feature of him that he loves doing the thing that everybody tells him will doom him. It probably feeds his ego a little bit in the sense he has of himself as somebody who will always stand on principle regardless. And this is where we can see that no comparison to to today really works. The reason why is because you are seeing a former president of the United States defy the large and growing base of his party on a matter of principle. In the year 2024, as the case may be, this would not be a good way to get a presidential nomination. But in an era prior to primaries, when the nominee is chosen by the party elites, who are able to look at Grover Cleveland and say, my God, we've got these Democrats all around the country who are intent on breaking the country's financial system, and we don't know what happens after we do that. And then we've got this guy who, yeah, is kind of a pain in the ass sometimes, but we know is going to keep the status quo together. Grover Cleveland winds up with the nomination. There's just no analogy to today. It's exactly the opposite strategy of what you would do if you were trying for a restoration in this day and age. And the question about gold and silver really does split the party. It gives the name, yes. the Bourbon Democrats, to Cleveland's faction. Yeah. And it will become the, well, the cross of gold, as Brian would later call it. But in 1893, there's a massive economic meltdown that Cleveland inherits. And it seems like a curse. And I, I'd, lo I'd love to spend a lot more time talking about that. We're, we're kind of a little caught for, for time, though. And there's something that I think is more important than Cleveland uh, and, the, and the gold standard and, and, and the collapse of the economy in 1893. And in his second term, it's, it's foreign policy. There's two things in particular, and your book, your book lays them out fantastically. One is Venezuela and the Monroe Doctrine, and the other is Hawaii and the decision to not bring Hawaii into the Union during his term. And these are two kind of contradictory, one quasi-imperialist, one anti-imperialist. So tell us about where you see Cleveland's legacy in terms of foreign policy. Well, the, these are two interesting cases. Um, I, I, and I think they are both – you will get this if you read the book. I think Cleveland's position on Hawaii is deeply admirable despite for the most part being inert. He's actually not particularly – apart from the point that you made that he actually prevents the country from annexing Hawaii or – I mean it sort of becomes a de facto protectorate but but not de jure. That's it. That's all That's all he's able to do there. Um, but. I include lengthy excerpts from his engagement with Congress on this because it uh, it's heart-wrenching. It's actually some of the most beautiful material that comes out of his administration. And I should I was going to move to Venezuela, but I'm talking so much about this that I should give people the context. So in the dying days of Benjamin Harrison's administration, a man by the name of John Stevens, who's Harrison's uh, ambassador to Hawaii, is complicit in what is essentially a coup. The Queen Lilia Kalani, the Hawaiian queen, is, is overthrown. The, the, the business, the American and British business interests in Hawaii for a long time had resented the monarchy. They thought that it was a feat. Um, they thought that it was impeding. I think most importantly, they thought that it was impeding their business interests. And um, the Republican jingoists and imperialists at the time were very sympathetic to this, including Stevens. Um, less so other members of the Harrison administration, but Stevens mattered. He was the man on the ground. And the idea is we overthrow the queen. 
just like that, in short order, Hawaii is going to have to become an American protectorate or we'll be able to annex it. Annexation is really what Stevens wanted. But this happened so late in Harrison's term that he's not able to seal the deal. And Cleveland comes into office. The record suggests to me that he does not come into office with his mind made up on this, although we know enough from what he said about foreign policy in the past that it's unsurprising that he came down on the side of being against this. Commission's a, a, a lengthy uh, report as to what happened. And, and Cleveland ends up with a really palpable sense of outrage over this. He really, it's a remarkable document that he sends to Congress. I'm not, I'm not sure that there's uh, another document in presidential history quite like it because he is um, there's a real sense of grief in it. He he is really expressing to the Congress that he feels like he misunderstands the country and that maybe the country misunderstands itself. That what they are considering doing with Hawaii is a total violation of everything that the United States is supposed to stand for. Unfortunately, the sum total really of his contributions on this is that statement to Congress, and the reasons why are some, somewhat structural and somewhat logistical, which is that by the time the Cleveland administration was able to do anything, his, his goal had been to restore the queen. Uh, the new government had been in power for better part of a year, and uh, while the Cleveland administration's diplomatic representatives were trying to work out an accommodation between the queen and the new government. They spent all their time with the queen first, trying to figure out terms that they could present to the new government, went to the new government. The new government said, what the hell are you talking about? We, we have no interest in negotiating with you because they calculated correctly because they realized that there was, there was actually no way to restore her short of a declaration of war. We would have had to send military forces to Hawaii and the Congress was just not going to do that. So uh, you feel you feel heartbroken a little reading this section on Cleveland and Hawaii. His heart was clearly in the right place. He just didn't have the tools to work his will. The Venezuela story, now largely forgotten, is a little bit different. Um, I I think that the Venezuela story may be the most it may be the most incompetently executed part of of Cleveland's presidency. Uh, again, uh, the motivation, I think, comes from a, a good place, but boy, is this just bollocks. <laughs> the, the, the origins of this is there's a dispute at the time between Venezuela and Britain. Uh, Britain is next door in British Guyana, and there's a territorial dispute over where the proper boundaries are supposed to be. Cleveland had dealt with this a little in his first term, only to the extent of telling Congress this should be resolved at some point. Maybe we should set up a commission to engage in arbitration. In his second term, this comes to the fore partially because the Venezuelans are launching a pretty aggressive lobbying campaign with Congress to bring it to the fore. And Cleveland, again, is suggesting arbitration. Um, but he and his his new, at the time, new Secretary of State, Secretary of State only, uh, engage in a series of letters to the British Prime Minister, um, which are just kind of are, are borderline embarrassing to read. So the, the argument that the administration is making is that because Britain has slowly been expanding the territory that it claims in the area, this is tantamount to a violation of the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine isn't just you can't come in and take new land. It's you can't you can't expand your existing holdings to an extent that that is tantamount to the same thing. Um. Easy enough, point you point you can make pretty directly. Instead, 
only writes this windy, supercilious letter to the British prime minister, lecturing him on the supremacy of American culture and how North, how America has to, by its very nature, would have to reject any sort of European state, a real revelation to a country still in possession of Canada at the time. And, um, and Cleveland eventually gets to the point of suggesting to Congress that, you know what, we don't need the British consent on this. We'll just do the arbitration ourselves. Don't know how they thought this was going to work. Circumstances end up bailing them out because tensions uh, between Britain and Germany led the British to think, okay, Venezuela is a back burner issue. We can submit it to arbitration. In the end, by the way, the British get most of what they want anyway. But Cleveland brings the country close to war. There is a sense in both England and America that this could spill out into war. And one of the many signs of how ineptly it's handled is that the Republicans in Congress are totally for him on this. They are they are agitated for this war. He doesn't want a war. He thinks that this is the way to the way to get to peace. So um it's an it's an odd moment in his administration. And then just the last thing I'll say about the foreign policy, which you really see in the Venezuela affair, we often think of Cleveland as a contrast to the progressive Democrats that come after him. I actually think on the foreign policy front, you can make an argument specifically as regards Venezuela that he is prefiguring where progressivism is going to go in that you see in his letters and Olney's this kind of utopian language about how warfare is outmoded for humanity, that humanity has to submit to reason and arbitration is the way to handle all of these things in the future. Um, you know, a, a sentiment that while well-intentioned seems somewhat naive when you hear it expressed more fully 30, 40 years after this. But in this moment, when everybody they're corresponding with is thinking of this purely as a matter of power politics, must have seemed insane. I mean, it's just this really, really um, supercilious lecturing that they're doing. And you can see the resentment from Lord Salisbury, the British prime minister, when he writes back, he just thinks he's talking to children. And Salisbury gives the Americans no credit as being even a regional power at that time. So that's right. It, it is it is something that I mean, I'm sympathetic with the intentions of Cleveland, actually. I, I think you make a really good point of it being incompetent. I'm less convinced about the outcome. So I wonder from your own perspective, how do we judge historical figures generally? I mean, do we judge them by the intentions? Because if we look at foreign policy as just an example in your the context that you so eloquent eloquently laid out there, yeah. um, you know, the intentions are largely right, moral and sound. And uh, but the the outcomes are lucky and 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 probably ham fisted a lot of what what he, yeah. you know, what he did. So how do we judge Cleveland and how do we judge historical characters more generally then? Well, that's such a great question and, and one that I give a lot of thought to. So I think intentions matter. I think it's certainly the case that you can't um, you can't relegate those to the sidebar. Outcomes, I mean, it seems like the most reductionist way possible. And I mean this in a good way, right? It seems like the most reductionist way possible is what did you do? What did you accomplish? Um, and I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of value to that. But the weight that I would put on the other scale is to what extent did the person, this is especially true in, in political discussions, to what extent extent did the person have any real ability to translate? the intentions to outcomes. Uh, I hold Cleveland, for instance, somewhat harmless on the Hawaii question because, uh, you know, having spent months and months on the, the research for this, I spent less time on the question than Grover Cleveland did, but probably more than a lot of others besides Grover Cleveland. I don't know what he could have done. 
I, I don't know what lever was available for it. So on that, uh, you know, I, I think I hold him harmless, and I say that the uh, the intentions matter a lot more to me than the outcomes. For something like Venezuela, the calculus would be different. They didn't have to write those letters that way. They they didn't have to. There were things that were within their control that could have possibly led to a better outcome. And uh, I think that's what it comes down to is it's you have to do the judgment on a case by case basis based on what were the resources realistically that these people had available to translate intent into action. I think that's a great answer that control matters and some things are completely out of your control. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, as a writer, though, that question about control. So you, you've written a biography. Um, tell us a little bit, not just about how you wrote it, but how you decided to craft because you are crafting a profile of of Cleveland. There's decisions that you make as a writer and things within your control. Um, what can you tell us about writing biography that you think is important to make those translations, as you put it? happen effectively? Well, in in terms of the process, as I said earlier, there is, um, unfortunately, there's just a, a real shortage of, I shouldn't say a shortage of material, but a shortage of material relative to other presidents, you know, with Grover Cleveland, because he was so careless in preserving this stuff. He did write, sort of, if you can call it writing, uh, one volume, it was actually a series of lectures that he did at Princeton in his retirement which covers some of the policy issues, mostly in the second term. It's incomplete, by the way. He was supposed to do one about Hawaii, which he never he never did, at least that we have any record of. He certainly never delivered it. Um, I have to say, having read those lectures led me to be a little less disappointed that he had never written a memoir, because if this was what a memoir would have looked like, it wouldn't have been that helpful. Uh, just because it's very lawyerly. It is, it is a regurgitation of what happened no different than you could get from the official paperwork. He's not taking you behind closed doors. So um, I tried to collate everything about his life. And, and people will notice, you know, as they work through the book, I do think it, it becomes more vivid as it goes on, just because in his youth, he's, as I say, he's a somewhat anonymous figure. We don't have every recollection we have of his youth is drawn from accounts years later when it suddenly it really mattered what Grover Cleveland was doing in the 1850s, you know. In terms of how I crafted it, there were a couple of things that were important to me. Um, one, there's a structure that I use repeatedly throughout the book, not in every chapter. Originally, I had it in every chapter and it was too much, um, where I start a lot of the chapters in the middle of this part of his life. I start you with a specific vignette, and then we sort of rewind you to how he got there. And that was an intentional choice, uh, A, just to spice it up a little bit, but I, I wanted I wanted a sense of the, the topsy-turviness of the life. It's, I mean, there's a reason that the subtitle of the book is The Turbulent Life, An Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland, because turbulent and improbable are the two operative words here. He's, everything that happens is strange. And if you were writing this as fiction, people would say, forget it. There is no way that any of this happens. That was one of the things I did. You know, the other thing that I did, and we'll see, the, so far the reaction to this has been um, positive. You, you cannot write a book like this, I don't think, or at least it'd be very difficult if you don't at some level fundamentally feel an affection for the person, like the person. It's just hard to spend that much time with somebody you don't like. Um, I like Grover Cleveland. Do I find him flawless? Not at all. 
I actually think it's the case that the, the proper approach, I think, to take in writing one of these books is liking somebody should be the same as in your in your personal life. The people you love the most are the people that you can often be the most honest and critical about. And I th I thought that was the way to approach Cleveland. So, you know, I am critical of him on several policy fronts. Uh, I am critical of him on a, quite a few personal fronts. But I also, I, I do feel as if there is an excess in modern history of trying to blow people's vices out of proportion relative to the rest of their lives. So it was important to me to be very clear and direct about his shortcomings, but also not to tarry on them, but more importantly, to put them to put them in a context, not to excuse them, but to explain why someone like Cleveland would have been that way. Because I do think one of the things we lose when we judge all of history by modern standards is you it kind of allows you to do history on the cheap. There are things that are obvious to us now only because there were generations of fights about them prior. And so I, I wanted to sort of illuminate him uh, in the context of his time. And 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 hopefully I've done that. And as I say in the book, I um, there's this slightly paradoxical thing in the introduction where I, I say that I think he was a a great president, even though he didn't necessarily have a great presidency, uh, because I think there's a there's a kind of integrity running through him, sometimes misbegotten, right? This integrity can bleed into self-righteousness, but there's an integrity running through him that I think, particularly in this day and age when people are very down about the state of American politics, provides a bit of inspiration. His career is a counsel against political cynicism. This is a book that is it shows a ma maturity of a writer, though, I have to say, Troy. So this oh, is thank you very much because very you're kind. right. I mean, your 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 subject is not flawless, of course, but neither are we, neither are you, neither am I, right? So, um, there's a real maturity in the way this is written. There's a maturity in the presentation of the 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 the, po the politics of all this. I mean, that naturally speaks. I probably I, I suspect to your your time in politics, but I, I have to say this is this is a really interesting biography. Uh, it could have been of of anyone. It just so happens to be about Cleveland. It's a, it's a sketch of a of a turbulent life and one that I think uh, I think people will want to buy and. And, and talk about over the next couple of years. So, because chances are, there's not going to be a lot of biographies about Cleveland. That's one <laughs> reason, but also, but also because it is, it is really well written and, and well thought out. So I thank you very much for joining me to talk about, about Grover Cleveland's life. Thank you so much. Very kind of you. Very, very pleased to be with you. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.